man, Brother G2, National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. I'm your host for the On the Ground podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at J4J underscore USA. You can also reach us on our Facebook page at the Journey for Justice Alliance. You can also reach us at our new special website, www.chaseofprivatizerdownthestreet.com. I'm only kind of kidding. Aparigani, Otep, Jumbo, what's happening? What's popping? And what up, though? I really love the amazing Diane Reeves kind of just glides us into the work we need to do today. Thank you all, everybody around the country that's spreading the word. The podcast is growing. We really do appreciate it. Again, this is the podcast that dives into the artistic science of community organizing. We believe that it's important to spread the message around what it means to speak power to power, because every right that we have as Black people in the United States has come as a direct result of exactly that. Nothing has been given to us because of some moral shift. Our capacity to mobilize our people around what we care about and pressure those that are in decision making are a wonderful example of the ability of people to have a certain level of power so they can address the issues they care about. You know, think about the March on Washington. People talk about the I Have a Dream speech and things of that nature, but don't talk about it in the framework of what the organizers of that march did was demonstrate the capacity to determine who would be president of the United States. They were able to get over 200,000 people mobilized in Washington, D.C. Any elected official understands that that 200,000 people really represents a few million. And that what happened the next year, the president of the United States signed the Civil Rights Act. The theme of our show today is sabotage. We are going to talk about the sabotage of public education in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Benton Harbor is a a small, mainly black city in Michigan, close to 10,000 people there, about almost 89, 90% black. But the struggle continues because in 2011, former Governor Rick Snyder appointed an emergency manager in Benton Harbor. And so that means that it is a government without power. So we want to talk to three folks who can shine some light on what's happening in Benton Harbor and then throughout the state of Michigan as well, because we don't want to forget that our current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has had her claws in Michigan for a number of years and has impacted that state. So we want to talk to three good people today. Ms. Marletta Seats, former member of Benton Harbor School Board, Dr. Tom Padroni, who is an associate professor of curriculum studies at Wayne State University, and my brother from another mother, Kamal Keparu, organizer with the Detroit Life Coalition and the statewide Michigan We Choose Coalition. So first, I want to thank all of you for joining us today on the On the Ground podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's an honor. Thank you. So maybe we can start with Sister Marletta. If you could please just briefly introduce yourself, explain to the people the work that you do and, and sort of why you do what you do. Again, my name is Marletta Seats from Benton Harbor, Michigan. Been in the Benton Harbor area since 1972. I am currently on the superintendent's advisory board. Served on the school board for two years. The second year I was school board president. Served 12 years at Berrien County as a Berrien County commissioner Mm. and have worked in this community 
probably since 1973. I worked mm-hmm. in the juvenile center. I currently work in the jail twice a week with women and men who deal with substance abuse. Yes, ma'am. So I'm honored to be on the podcast. Yes, ma'am. And thank you. Thank you, Miss Seeks. Dr. Tom thank Petroni, you. introduce yourself. And just let us know what you do and why you do. Absolutely. Um, Thomas Padroni at Wayne State University. I'm a teacher, educator, and educational researcher. I've been researching education in Michigan and Metro Detroit for almost 15 years now. And I am intensely aware of how education for urban communities of color has been negatively affected in this state, and Benton Harbor is just one of many examples that we could discuss. I come to this specific work through my alliances with some of our state board members and state reps, and also my work with Michigan We Choose, which is pioneering an alliance across African-American urban communities across the state, recognizing that it's not just Detroit, but also urban communities that are being similarly affected. And I appreciate you being on time. Kamal. Yes, sir. sir. Kamal Keparu, proud, proud young man, baby, born and raised in Detroit, part of the Detroit Life Coalition, and also a member of the Michigan We Choose, which Dr. Petroni said it, but the Michigan We Choose is our representation of a statewide network. And I'll I'll stop there because Tom hit the main point and we go more in detail later. So, again, I want to thank everybody for being on. Everybody hold on because we are going to dive into the sabotage of public schools in Benton Harbor, Michigan. I want folks to think about that frame. Too often in black communities, we are so under assault. The basic quality of life institutions that we have in our communities, whether it's food production and delivery systems, whether it's health care, education housing, the very systems that we pay taxes into, sabotage those institutions, make life increasingly more difficult for our people. And then we are blamed for the failure of those institutions to function. It is the craziest type of relationship if you think about it. But what we've learned in the Journey for Justice Alliance is that we don't have failing schools. The problem in public education is not bad teachers. The problem in public education is not inner city children that don't want to learn. And I'm saying this for folks that are African-American across class lines, because we don't stand with each other like we need to. We actually internalize a lot of those class divisions that makes us believe that people that live in the hood are in the hood because they've made bad choices, as opposed to the hood being a social construct. So we don't have failing schools. We've been failed. But when other populations, you go in their neighborhoods, they have grocery stores. The liquor store is not their grocery store. They have good schools. Not good schools because the children are smarter. Good schools because the municipalities value them more. They don't know what it means to live with a slumlord. They don't know what it means when you don't have heat or where you have gaping holes in the walls of your apartment, rats and roaches. They have no knowledge of that type of existence. I want to be very clear for those who like it and especially for those who don't. Our frame is not to blame our people for the sabotage of our basic quality of life institutions. And we're going to dive into Benton Harbor in just a second. But before we do, we're going to do our member spotlight. And one of our member groups 
is a kick butt group of organizers in a coalition called Schools and Communities United out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, people often call Milwaukee the little sister to Chicago, but they're not organizing like little sisters. They organize like big cousins. They're over there swinging. Folks may remember a couple of years ago, there was an effort to charter the entire city. They defeated that. They've stopped several school closures in Milwaukee by coming up with something that was so innovative called school defense team. And parents, students, educators stood together at these different schools to organize the resistance to school closings and then bring them together to pressure elected officials to do right. They were able to get several progressive people elected to the school board. And since that time, have expanded community schools. So now they have 10 community schools in the city of Milwaukee. And they're working to make Milwaukee a sustainable community school district. So I want to give a lot of love to our good people, my sister Ingrid Henry and Schools and Communities United in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I want to applaud you all and say salute. But now back to our guests. I want to start off with this question. Our education secretary is Betsy DeVos. She's a multimillionaire philanthropist. Yeah, a billionaire. Thank you. And has now, without ever teaching in the classroom, without ever sending her children to public schools, she's actually responsible for the U.S. Department of Education. But she comes from Michigan. So anyone can answer this. How has Betsy DeVos's education policies impacted cities across Michigan, including Benton Harbor? The DeVos's have been very active in Michigan for at least two decades now in educational policy. And they have a lot of money so they can throw their weight around. And they have thrown their weight around in significant ways. They've had some losses and they've also had some major victories. As far as losses are concerned, they've put vouchers up to the electorate twice now and been roundly defeated both times in Michigan. Dick DeVos ran for governor a number of years back and was handily defeated. They've also had some victories. They've been instrumental in restructuring how education has been funded in our state. And one thing that we have in Michigan in terms of education funding is called Proposal A. Proposal A was passed in 1994. It was sold to a lot of legislators out of the belief that it would help equalize school funding, or at least bring it a little bit closer to equity than it had been before between wealthy districts and poor districts. It did that for a while to a small degree. But what it also did is it connected how much funding each district or school got depending on the number of bodies of students that were in those schools. So what that means is it set up a system where school districts and charters with Michigan having one of the earliest charter laws in 1994 as well, meaning that for every student that a charter school could attract, it was getting approximately, I think now the per pupil is about $8,000, and the public school that they were leaving was losing $8,000. So what we've had across the state is a situation where charters were being introduced at the same time that students were directly connected to this per-pupil funding. Mm. And especially in places like Detroit, where Angler, the governor at the time, who was one of the 
earliest and most vocal supporters of charters as a free market mechanism, supposedly, for reforming public schools, he took over the Detroit public schools and they were managed so dismally, so recklessly, and began a downward spiral of academics and finances that it really allowed charter schools to take off because now they seem very attractive in Detroit, at least, relative to what was now happening in the declining public schools. But across the state, other districts have not been immune, and Benton Harbor is one of many, especially with the 2008 financial collapse School districts have been hurting. And as we know, under uh, Democratic administrations, under Obama's Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, states had to put more mechanisms in place to encourage what they were calling educational markets. And what that meant is that the districts with the lowest income students, the lowest property taxes, started to hurt the most. And when they started to hurt the most, the state began to take control or heavily influence what was happening in those districts. There have been two primary mechanisms through which the state has sought control, finances and academics. We also know that test scores have been used to claim that students are failing when it's really our society that has been failing African-American and Latino and other communities. So, Tom, I apologize. I don't mean to cut you off, but you're laying out some important information. I think these are teachable moments that people need to understand. The first thing is that the state of Michigan, through the influence of the DeVos family, in other words, purchasing the loyalty of different legislators, began to change the funding system in Michigan to more of a per pupil funding system while they are legislating support for charter schools. So as the public schools get starved of resources and they say these schools are failing, it's almost like throwing a grenade in your neighborhood school and parents grab their babies and they say, well, what are we going to take them? But there's this shiny school over here where every child, you know, every child gets a laptop, every child gets an iPad and the floors are buffed. And this is where we can send our children. I want people to think about this. How many Millions of children have been victimized by the very unintelligent argument that says that what we need to do to fix education is to give people a choice of more schools. Just think, honestly, think how stupid that is. Nobody deals with what should be happening in the classroom. Has the mandate of Brown v. Board been realized? Do all children have the same access to inspiration in their classrooms? It's really important. It's something as important as education that we stop accepting these lame, prepackaged campaigns to basically destroy our public education institutions, which for black people has been one of our primary vehicles to be able to escape from the stifling oppression of racism. So I just wanted to add that, Tom, as, you, as you're laying it out. If you wanted to finish, let's do so quickly and then come out, come on with it. I think it's a perfect place for me to hand off to come out because I was going to start to mention some of the communities that have been most impacted. Tom and G2 has laid out from a policy standpoint and how legislators have supported the demise of public education. Now, when you look at the different communities, I want to paint a picture. This is what you see. One, black and brown teachers have been totally removed from 
the school districts mm. by not being supported in the classrooms. When you add 40 to 50 kids in the classroom, you're lowering the teacher pay, you're taking their retirement. And then with these policy from standardized tests, how can a teacher effectively teach when they have to focus on the test? So when you look at there's no teachers in public school, it speaks to what G2 talked about, sabotage. So when you close schools, the people that get fired are the veteran African-American teachers. Correct. They are replaced by young teachers that tend to be white women who don't stay. So I want folks to remember when you used to have your teacher taught you, your little brother, your little sister, or your big brother, your big sister. Your teacher had rank. If your teacher called your mother because your teacher had been with your family for years educating your children, that teacher had rank. She understood your issues. She wasn't afraid of you. And now we have school systems where the teachers that are there stay for two years or three years, and then they leave when they finally get the hang of it. And all the research says that teachers really get their stride by their fourth year. So it is sabotage. And I just want to lay that out for people as Kamal's going into it. But go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. And I'm just the last part, because I miss Cease, I definitely need to get in, is that you talked about a grenade. What Bessie DeVos policies has done is when you drive around, I know in Detroit and in other cities also, that if you close a school and if the school was the anchor of the community and the school is now closed, you have communities throughout Detroit that would look equivalent to a war-tone society. So when G2 talked about dropping their grenade, when you go through these different communities and the school is not there, it's totally looked like it was a war in these cities. Let's go a little further with that, brother. So what we know is that in most cities across this country where school closings, charter expansion, and the loss of affordable housing is taking root, the number of black people in those cities have gone down significantly. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, we've gone in 2000 from 53% of the population. Today, we are 32% of the population. In Detroit, the same thing. In Washington, D.C., you know, we used to be Chocolate City. And now Washington, D.C. is less than 50% African-American. It's unbelievable. New Orleans, America's most African city, is now less than 50% African-American. Oakland, California, San Francisco, Philadelphia. There's nowhere where this reality does not take place. So I think it's really important that as we struggle for education justice, when people come with the notion of privatization, we need to immediately reject it and we need to demand equity. You know, one of the things we did in Chicago, which has backed them off of school closings for a while, is we did an equity bus tour. We took parents and legislators from a school on the block or in the hood to a school, not in another city, in the same city. So imagine a school on the south side of Chicago and then a school close to DePaul University. Two neighborhood schools, two schools in the same city, a completely different reality. And we began to push the the fight is for equity. And what that does is that puts the school districts on a defensive instead of us being on a defensive. And our point was, why does this teacher have a teacher aid in every class? Why do they only have 15 students for every teacher? But on the south side of Chicago, in this elementary school, is 36 kindergartens, 52 kindergartens in one case, in one class. Why do they only have one teacher aide 
in the entire building. That's not the fault of low-income families. That is sabotage. So I think it's really important, the lessons that you all are dropping, and I'm just trying to accentuate what you all are saying because it's really important for us to understand that what could be more evil than to look at a third grader and sabotage their future on purpose. And that is exactly what my sisters and brothers in Benton Harbor, Michigan, are experiencing right now. So I want to ask my sister Marletta Seats, if you could just give us an overview of Benton Harbor, just so people get a, a picture of where you've lived for so long. The population now is probably about 10,000. And I'm looking at some information on some timelines because there was a desegregation order in 1981 when there was over 17,000 students used to belong to the Benton Harbor Area School District. And after the desegregation order, it disseminated kids into different areas, uh, Coloma, especially all Claire. And so our kids began to go to these other school districts. And since that, there has never been an ability to retrieve some of the kids because they refuse to upgrade our facilities. They refuse to give us the teachers that are necessary. Most of the kids get substitute teachers. If you go into one of our schools, literally the mice run the school. Wow. And the teachers have to put their feet on the desk. There were uh, worms coming out of the drinking fountain. Kids were getting sick on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the assistant superintendent didn't even know how to call 911 or call the health department. We have special ed kids who have been horribly mistreated. And in Benton Harbor, if one of our students or kids get in trouble, and they go to the juvenile center, 100% of our kids are put on Ritalin. And so once you're trying to educate kids who have been since they were small on a medication that does not allow them to absorb education, our suspension rate is extremely high. Our teachers slap our kids. Our teachers tell the kids they'll never be nothing and nobody. Our teachers will walk out, leave the kids in the classroom. The new superintendent had one classroom. He put them in the library, and it was 89 kids in the library by themselves. So, of course, they did what kids do, tore up the library. They were violating Title IX. People really don't care about the kids in Benton Harbor. We have exceptional talented kids. All of the kids' grades are four years behind. This is not new information. Yes, ma'am. The state has tried to take over this district since 2000. They keep sending incompetent, incompassionate people in here that care nothing for the kids. And now he's trying to charter the schools out because we have the best property in Berrien County. Uh, We own hundreds of acres of property and prime Prime property that the city near the river, near the lake, Mm. in farming areas, beautiful Mm. property. And everybody knows that some of our property is desired by major corporations. Uh, We have 
unused facilities where monies was designated to fix the facilities. We get billions of dollars. There's no accountability from the state. The state tells the board, stay in your lane. If you don't do this, we will shut it down and dissolve it. It's constant threats. The kids in Benton Harbor do not have an opportunity. When I was school board president, we found $680,000 worth of books that had been sitting in an empty school building for two years with pencils and papers, and the teachers had been complaining, our kids don't have books. They'll give them laptops that don't work. I was taught a long time ago that values are beliefs that govern your behavior. Absolutely. Budgets and policies are value documents. The policies you set represent what you believe. Mm-hmm. Just think about this. 1954, the work of several brave souls went to the Supreme Court and actually won. And they said separate but equal is unconstitutional. You have to end segregation with all deliberate speed. Now, what I want people to really think about is, do you think that our ancestors were organizing during that time? Do you believe that they had an overwhelming desire to go to school with white people? Do you think it was out of some, like we had some paternalistic view of white people to say, well, we want to go to school with you, boss? Or was it that the hatred was so thick that our folks said, well, maybe if our kids go to school with their kids, we'll get some love. I maintain it's the latter. And the response from that mandate from the 1950s and 60s, when the response was violent, to the 1980s, when they began to to come up with the notion of school privatization, and then Bill Clinton initiated what we call zero tolerance in public schools, and literally criminalized millions of black and brown children. And from that to the punitive test that flowed throughout school systems all throughout the 90s, putting schools on academic probation, setting them up for school privatization. And why? Because in cities like Benton Harbor or Camden, New Jersey, or Dayton, Ohio, where you're sitting on prime real estate or Bronzeville on the south side of Chicago, or Washington, D.C. in the nation's capital, They don't want us there. And by they, I mean the municipalities and the corporations that tell them what to do. They don't want us there. And that us includes black people that don't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of, or those of us who believe we fancy. They don't want any of us there. So what they do is they sabotage the lives of children in order to push us out of cities so that those cities can be reconstituted to reverse the impact of white flight that happened before and during the civil rights movement. Sister Marletta was just laying it out, and I had to add that piece to it because we have to understand there's a crisis in Benton Harbor right now, but there is the unsexy work that we must do to begin to politicize people in our communities around what's going on and to start organizing for little victories so that we can get a taste of what it means to win, because our people don't know what that feels like to be able to speak power to power. And for those of you that say that our people don't want to do nothing, shame on you. Shame on you, because that is not the case. The case is we have been conditioned to believe we can't win. So the job of an organizer 
is to organize little victories to reprogram ourselves to believe that we can win something. I'm telling you this because I've done it. I've organized with parents to win a parent room. Now, I wanted to organize around school closings. For all this parent wanted was a parent room. And my job was to listen to that parent and help her win what she wanted. And when she won that, you can see the light come on in our eyes. And then we can start processing things. And then she feels, oh, this organization makes sense to be a part of. So I'm saying, sisters and brothers, we have to realize that while we have to organize around these crises, there's some very unsexy work that we must do in all of our cities. We have to begin to go with our folks and use the artistic science and community organizing to help our folks realize what it feels like to win. And as we do that, we can begin to see the bigger prize. Tom, can you say a little bit about the current threat to public education right now? Each of these represents taking what is really a fault or a crisis in our state and self and putting it on people. We always do that, right? We, we blame people for their own poverty. Mm-hmm. We blame people for their school failure. We blame people for uh, their districts not having enough money to properly fund the education of their kids. We say it's all their fault locally. Mm-hmm. I want to point out, turning back towards Benton Harbor as the latest example, I did some number crunching thanks to so much data that um, Ms. Seats has been organizing a, a work of love for the district, archiving this all and keeping it and then sharing it to protect the district, that you have Benton Harbor that has now less than 2,000 of its own kids enrolled in its district. There are almost 4,000 kids who live in the district who either go to charters or to the surrounding school districts. And I think that that piece needs to be added in. We we rightly talk a lot about charters and how they've attracted, but in, in Michigan and probably other places too, we need to talk about the way that districts themselves have been put into competition to survive for Mm -hmm. students. And we see the impact of that in Detroit, and we see it all over Michigan. We see it in Benton Harbor, where about 2,000 children go to surrounding districts. And that has Mm -hmm. all kinds of crazy effects where then predominantly white families in those surrounding districts end up choosing schools even farther out to get away from the kids from Benton Harbor. So I want to turn back to Marletta Seats, if we can, because I I think she can give us an important part of the story that I don't think we've heard yet on this podcast, which is what led to our crisis right now. And how are we pushing back? How could we establish a victory? How does Benton Harbor represent the core of what is happening to Black urban communities right now? Thank you, Tom, is why we're here is because we had what they called in 2014, a consent agreement. Then they entered into 2017, entered into a partnership agreement. And all those partnerships or all of those agreements were leaned more towards what the state wanted and not what the district needed. Mm -hmm. And so then what happened consequently with the consent agreement, it didn't work. They had consultants here who brought in individuals who, again, like I stated, just wasted money. It was a you scratch my back, I scratch your type episode. Then now we're in a cooperative agreement. How we entered into the cooperative agreement under my tenure was because we had what we call a SRO. And he was not a Caucasian. He was an African-American gentleman who manipulated a situation that did not exist, him and a couple other former superintendents. 
they made the decision that the district needed a different kind of oversight. And so they began to take away again the power of the board, which was doing a phenomenal job in looking at things that over the years nobody had delved into. How do you spend $200,000 for one month just for transportation? Mm. How are you spending that kind of money, a million dollars for cleaning the facilities and the facilities are not clean? No board had ever seen the salaries of the individual or were not allowed to see who was working in the district. So as we began to get out of our lane or dig into the weeds, then we were told by the state, Department of Treasury, Michigan Department of Education, and we had our state rep and our state senator said that if we did not agree to allowing a CEO to govern over the district and we become an advisory board, it was Mm. quote unquote, we will shut you down today. And they did not have to give a reason. And it was because of declining enrollment. No, that was not it. Was it because we didn't balance a budget? That was not it. The reason was because we were gathering information that would lean back to the state's inability to own up to their fault in what was going on in Benton Harbor. We found out that they didn't do reports, which was required of them to turn in reports. They were not looking after the finances. And we were getting into a situation where in the next three years, we might have been broke. And when we ask questions, then we're penalized. And immediately, soon as the CEO came in, he refused to meet with the board. He refused to have a conversation. And when we complained that he was in anticipatory breach of the cooperative agreement, again, we were told to stay in our lane, no response. And now he's saying, because the board is supposed to get his power back at the end of June, now he's saying, well, we don't have the money uh, to pay the teachers in June. We need to turn the schools into a charter school. It is about businesses taking every single bit of our property. We would only have two facilities if he does this and he says he wants to do this by April and turn it in to a charter school. Why he has the authority and the board does not. Sister, you mentioned the word SRO. Can you explain what that means just for our listeners? The SRO is an individual that the state put in place to close schools. Mm. And it is a person who works directly for the governor's office Mm -hmm. and the Michigan Department of Education. And the SRO, I believe it was established by Snyder's office, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, um, the SRO is, so then that stands for the State Reform Office and the individual Uh, that's correct, State Reform Officer. And it's something that was created by the competition in 2009 for Race to the Top funds. Basically, the State Reform Office is considered a wholly existing school district. And the idea is that it was to manage all of the schools in the bottom 5% initially in the whole state. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that that's the school closure piece. And mm-hmm. it's going out of existence on June 30th. And the only 
school district in its portfolio right now is Benton Harbor because of the unique agreement that Benton Harbor made with the state reform, well, made, they were coerced into it, with the state reform office so that they wouldn't face closure of some of their schools. Okay, so what we see is a lot of structure in order to disenfranchise the people in Michigan, and particularly in the black cities. Sisters and brothers, this is really important for us to, and again, we're being redundant because we need to be. It's really important for us to realize that school choice is a scam. You know, it's a hustle. It's three-card Monty. It's pick a card, any card. That it has nothing to do about the education of black children. Because if it did, then the clarion call would be equity. And the people leading it would be the people directly impacted. The establishment can never tell us what the metrics of equity should be. The metrics of equity have to come from the people that are closest to the pain. And so we should not look lightly upon this. And I have a couple of more questions before we close. Uh, The first one is, so how much time do we have to organize to stop this takeover of Mm -hmm. school? One thing that we have now that is helping us in that urgency, we were able to put together a statewide network within about 36 hours to begin to respond to what was happening in Benton Harbor. That statewide network included some of the top educational advocates uh, and organizers like Mama Helen Moore in Detroit. It included about 10 of us from Michigan We Choose. It included uh, G2 Brown at a national level. uh, And it included several, four state board members, some representatives, some people from the governor's Mm -hmm. office. So especially now with a, a Democratic governor who's already made some missteps as far as Black communities in Michigan are concerned, that we need to bring the heat if this starts to go the wrong way. And she's already shown some propensity to let things go the wrong way. Tom, I I would actually say that one of the things that uh, I've learned in organizing is every fight is not going to be won after one protest or one action. But it's also important as organizers to make sure that our target is clear so that people understand if we go to this person You know, you either go to somebody who can get you what you want or somebody who can influence the person to get you what you want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in our fight in Chicago to save Diet High School, our primary target was Mayor Rahm Emanuel. But our secondary target was Alderman Will Burns, who was the alderman of the area. So we knew that if we chased Will Burns down the street enough, he would call Rahm Emanuel and say, boss, get him to school, get them off me. And then so we targeted our approach so that our people wouldn't get worn out, that as you hit the appropriate targets, you'll begin to see the onion unfold. And as the onion unfolds, people can see that we're going to get to the core if we keep going. But if we don't target the right people with the right tactic, and in my humble opinion, the person that needs to be getting heat right now is that governor, regardless of what she says and when she says it, because she's the decider. When the smoke clears, She's got the power to kill all of this. What's the the new governor of Michigan's name? Gretchen Whitmer. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, I saw you on CNN. And when I saw you, I called Kamau immediately because you came out against Betsy DeVos's policies. Now, the safe thing for Democrats to say now is we are against for-profit charter schools. But no, that's not enough. Betsy DeVos's policies are Arnie Duncan's policies outside of vouchers. For-profit charter schools exploded on Arnie Duncan's watch as well. 
So if you are against Betsy DeVos's policies, that means you have to be against state takeovers. You have to be against mayoral control. You have to be against all of those policies that are part of the school privatization playbook. So in my humble opinion, sisters and brothers, those folks that are prepared to mobilize should be mobilized directly to the governor's office. It does not have to be confrontational at first. It can be, we need to talk to you. This is happening. We need equity. What are you going to do? And if she doesn't go right, then I think you all should put your heads together with some folks that are used to raising hell and figure out how to make her life hell because she got an office being an anti-Betsy DeVos. So it's important that we push Democrats to the left in regards to public education. But fights like this take not only people, they take determined actions. By no means am I telling you what to do. I'm just giving you my reflections based off what you all have said to me, that the governor of Michigan has come out as pro-public education. If you are pro-public education, that means you are anti-school privatization. That means all of his tentacles, all of his tentacles, these fake community groups like Stand for Children, these legislation like state takeovers, punitive standardized tests that are, as W.E.B. Du Bois said in 1940, are just tools of white supremacy. If he understood that in 1940, it is inexcusable for us to be struggling with this today. If I lived in Benton Harbor or Detroit, I have my people in a beeline for her office. Can I inject one quick second? I know time is is of essence. If we stop building need-based school districts and start building asset-based school districts, we can sustain them. We need to quit building even need-based communities. Because when you just judge me based on my need and not my asset, you will never be able to sustain because we have assets. That's what the enemy per se. They care nothing about the need. And if we try to solve this as Benton Harbor needs and we just build whatever based on that, we'll never be the sustainable district that these kids deserve in Benton Harbor. So I, I, I like assets. Building. And that's exactly what Sustainable Community Schools talks about. That's right. You build on the wisdom. See, we understand that there are two types of knowledge. There's community knowledge and there's content knowledge. They both are important. They both are critical. When you're envisioning what a school should look like, both of those sets of expertise have to be in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I know this because I've, I've been blessed to be a part of those types of processes on many occasions where people have not only stopped their schools from closing, but they've won important resources for their schools or even reimagined their schools. What I'm saying to you, sisters and brothers that are listening to the podcast, that whether the issue is housing, like in Chicago right now, uh, you all heard the podcast. We at Chicago hanging on the edge right now over rent control. And it's unbelievable, but I feel in my heart of hearts, we're about to win rent control in the city of Chicago. People told us it wasn't possible. People was like, you're not going to be able to win that. Now you have mayoral candidates talking about, I support rent control. So I want to just say to everybody that the peace in Benton Harbor feels hard, but for, it's hard for all of us. What's most important is that we realize that the solution to this is not how eloquent we are. The solution to this is not how many books we write. 
the solution to this is going to be our capacity to speak power to power. Absolutely. That's what's going to win this for us. So I want to say to Benton Harbor, the Journey for Justice Alliance is with you. These crises are happening all over the country. I just talked to a sister yesterday, Sister Anika from Little Rock, Arkansas. Anika, shout out to Grassroots, Arkansas. They're going through a state takeover in Little Rock. Imagine the city where the Little Rock Nine took over Central High School. They're experiencing a state takeover. So we know that the solution to this is us being able to organize ourselves. And again, the Journey for Justice Alliance is with you. So I want to thank my guests for being with us today. Ms. Marletta Seats, a longtime servant of Benton Harbor. I want to thank Dr. Tom Padroni from Wayne State University. And once again, my brother from another mother, Kamal Keparu from the Detroit Life Coalition and the Statewide Michigan We Choose Coalition. And look, we're going to close with a song from one of the nicest underground MCs that you may or may not have heard of. It happens to be me. All right. So I can't say I'm ego tripping because we've been on a month and I ain't played none of my music. But I have this song perfectly captures what we're talking about today. And the song is uh, called Sabotage. It's uh, one of the underground joints I dropped in 2010. And it perfectly illustrates what we experience in Bitten Harbor and in so, so many communities across the country. You can follow us at J4J underscore USA on Twitter. And you can also go to our Facebook page, Journey for Justice Alliance. I want to thank everybody for spending some time with us today on the ground. Don't believe the sound bites and smiling faces. The education system's racist. Know that the schoolhouse, the jailhouse is not a mirage. Tell me what you call that. Sabotage. Sabotage. Don't believe the sound bites and smiling faces. The education system's racist. Know that the schoolhouse, the jailhouse is not a mirage. Tell me what you call that. This, this is a story of the young and restless black and brown babies whose futures messed with Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans, LA. The same type of story on a different day. Tamika, she's 10 years old and her block is rough. A little chocolate drop man with Afro pus. She was good at double dutch and playing Mary Mac. But the baby had demons that were scary and fat. She bore witness to the impact of crack when her mama got killed over by the train tracks. Her TT is raising a selling weed. Our homes can't be free when the community bleeds. Straight up, God blessed her with the gift of speech. But her school environment's toxic, impossible to teach. She wants to be a lawyer, longs to sing. Society, it seems, she support her dreams. She got 38 students in her homeroom class. Her teacher on the daily gets shattered like glass. Low expectations, they say we're lazy. What's going on in schools is crazy. Test. Jobs are on the line, man, bump the rest For four hours a day, she cramming for the test But her academic book is really under arrest Cause she only gets science one day a week Her history's whited out, the system's deep So by eighth grade, baby girl refused